Hey family, thank you to all our listeners and thank you again for joining us at Cinema Pathway Podcast today. I'm Michael Angel Malachi, your new host. Howard Brand is no longer with us because of an excellent opportunity to expand his career. Guys, we are so excited for him and his new endeavors. But most importantly, we wish him all the best. And the production here thanks him for a fantastic year. You will always have a home here in Cinema Pathway Podcast. A continuation will have one of his last two episodes, which we'll have at the regular time on Monday. And I, Michael Angel Malachi, are with you guys on Halloween and on. Get ready. Welcome, film industry professionals, movie aficionados, and aspiring filmmakers. This is the Cinema Pathway Podcast, brought to you by Paradoxical Films. I'm your host, Howard Brand. Join us on a journey behind the camera, and most importantly, beyond what we know about film and the craft of filmmaking. So sit tight, grab some popcorn and soda, let's go ride on Cinema Pathway. Welcome listeners to the Cinema Pathway Podcast. I hope everyone out there has had an enjoyable summer or winter for those in the Southern Hemisphere. It's been an interesting couple of months in the film industry. Barbenheimer won the summer both on screen and off. Super Mario Brothers is currently number one worldwide box office. We'll see if it still retains that at the end of the year. In the franchise and sequel world, Guardians of the Galaxy 3 did not disappoint. The Fast and the Furious franchise continues to be just a money-making machine for its producers and investors. And surprisingly, or unsurprisingly, two living legends and their iconic franchises underperform. Unfortunately, the ongoing strike looms large over everything, with some previous planned releases for late 2023 being moved to 2024, as well as other projects just completely put on hold. But here's the thing. No matter how much money a blockbuster, an indie, or really any movie costs to make or brings in, they are the results of hundreds, if not thousands of hours of work done by our industry colleagues out there who put their heart and soul into every project they do. So a huge shout out to them. Speaker productions, strikes, everything we talk about here. You're probably familiar with who producers, the directors, the actors, maybe some cinematographers and screenwriters, who they are, what they do, household names. But the next time you watch a movie, pay attention to the credits, particularly the end credit. After you see the above the line names come up and it starts to go into the credit roll, you're going to notice that the first person whose name you see is the unit production manager or UPM. Why are they first? Primarily because not only are they one of the first people hired on a production, without the UPM and their production management team, these movies will most likely never see the light of day or even get their cameras rolling. Today, we have a wonderful guest who is a production manager. She started in music and eventually found her way into the chaotic world of film. In addition to film, she's managed live events, uh, notably the Urban Film Festival here in Miami. She worked her way up from unpaid intern up to producer and beyond. I'm pretty sure that by the end of this episode and after meeting her, you will not be surprised that she accomplished all that. I am happy to welcome Francesca Frenchy Gonzalez. Thank you for having me. Frenchy, I mentioned that you worked your way up in the business in a relatively short time, actually. Like I said, you started in music and not just casually, like, you know, when I played the recorder in third grade. It was a significant part of your life, almost what you dedicated early part of your life to. Take us back to how that first began and what was that like? So I was, I think you could say fortunate enough to have a 
parents who were really involved in my upbringing and um, started with simple piano classes at the age of six. And that turned into um, several years of magnet school and playing in symphonies and orchestras and then going on to vocal performance. And my entire life was um, music. It was a very disciplined hobby, you could say. Um, required a lot of practice, a lot of showing up, a lot of rehearsals. Didn't really give me much time for sports or any other extracurricular activities. So my entire upbringing was music, music, music. Did you always stick with piano? No, I, I did piano maybe for the first two years. And then I ventured into viola, which is like a deeper version of the violin. Did that for about eight and a half years, nine years, maybe. Yeah. Then in high school, I went strictly into vocal performance. And there we did... Um, um, like opera training, we did musical theater training, and then all kinds of uh, performances. So I grew very disciplined in the art of performing, if you will. Did you do acapella? Uh, we did all kinds of things, acapellas, musicals, um, parodies, all kinds of stuff. I will admit, Pitch Perfect is a little bit of a guilty pleasure of mine. Really well done. And like other franchises, they just like you get magic and great things happen in the first one. And then you try to force it in to the other ones and they just they just didn't work. Pitch Perfect was great because and Glee, like those creations were so awesome to be in chorus at that time because we're so relatable and we would sometimes sing them and the whole culture around having those shows at that time was was great. It was awesome, right? <laughs> so then, then after high school, you made an attempt to stay in music, but kind of went to the other side so of music. I think like many others, first of all, was always really, I was really good at music, um, but I never really felt like I chose to do it. I kind of was thrown into it and excelled and did really well. But I think deep down, I always wish I could explore other things. So when it, I graduated high school and it was time to pick a discipline to, to go to college, I felt very lost and I felt pretty insecure about pursuing music because it didn't feel aligned deeply with what I wanted to do. But also, I think from a young age, you learn or there's a stigma. There's It's not a stigma. Like musician, making it as a musician is incredibly difficult, not just... Um, depending on what your goals are, but like financially too, it could be a difficult thing to um, to pursue as a career. So I also just wanted to see what else I was capable of. So I went to Miami-Dade for music business, hoping to merge the worlds between creative and business. And I was always um, a very resistant student. I loved learning. I loved being in the classroom and discussing things, hated school. And I think it was just a mix of lack of interest of being in these classes as well as um, immaturity, maybe. So I dropped out. I dropped out of college and kind of quickly, not quickly, probably within, you know, maybe six months time. I was like, okay, I, I need a skill set. I need to figure something out. I had had like a, a retail job and I didn't want to go down the path of just job to job. I needed to figure something out. And a friend of mine, a really good friend of mine is a DP at a film house called Florida Film House. And I said, hey, um, you know, you guys doing a project soon? Like, can I just come on set and see what it's like? And he said, yeah, come. We have a music video actually coming up soon. You should come. Okay. All right, great. There was a golf course was in Wynwood, the studio that, that Florida Film House is in Wynwood. So the shoot was at this uh, really cool studio called Toe Jam. And um, I went on set and I said, hey, uh, can I start interning here? And they said, yeah, go ahead. Uh, our food arrives in about an hour. Help us set it up and pass it out. And that is where my filmmaking journey began. And you mentioned something, and it's something we talk about on here, about like there's learning in the classroom and learning outside the classroom. Possibly if instead of going to college, you had gone to intern 
for like, you know, a music studio or something, your experience could have been completely different. It's just sometimes in that classroom setting, it's just not conducive to your learning and you learn better, like hands on doing it. It's true. I had dabbled into it a little, but I don't think I knew what I was doing. And maybe if I had some guidance too, like 17, kind of like I would go to studios and I would record myself. I mean, I would still do it for fun, but I was like, I don't even know what, what do I want to do? Do I want to engineer? Do I want to like, do I want to be a producer? And, And I think the other important thing is, you know, to those 17, 18, 19 year olds out there, it's okay if you don't know what you want to do. It's so important to know that it's okay. And I know that it's probably doesn't help much at 17 because a lot of people would tell me that like, it's okay if you don't know. And I'd be like, I need to know at like your early 20s, you're just trying to become an adult break out into the world. And you're like, I need to have the answers, or at least I thought I did to, to be socially accepted. You know, there was nothing more, I guess, embarrassing if I would go to like a family gathering or right after high school, everyone's asking you, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? And the last thing you want to say is I have no idea. I always want to be like, yeah, I'm going to go into music business. I know what I'm doing. And maybe not everyone's like that. I was. My personal story, after I graduated high school in the uh, late 20th century, I started at college as a theater major. Didn't have the commitment to stick with it. And I switched majors a couple of times. Finished with criminal justice, which reason why at the time, the OJ Simpson trial was like the biggest news in the country. Kind of like criminal psychology was starting to, you know, become a big thing. So I'm looking at different rooms. I'm like, oh, cool. You know, forensic science, criminal psych, all this stuff. I could do an internship with the police department. Again, did that by... My senior year, I really had no desire to go into that field and try different things. And, you know, I'd always kind of been come back to perform film, more on the theater side. Film, I was always just a lover of movies. I used to be more interested in watching the behind the scenes and the making of sometimes more than the movie itself. And then, you know, had a career and, and it wasn't until later in life that I just decided to go back into it and went to film school, started working in the film industry and have a look back since. Wow. That's amazing. The fact that you even went for it. You're like, wow, I'm interested in this thing and I'm going to try it. That's huge. And I'm sure you learned things that you took with you to the next thing. So Yeah, I tried. And there are people that have done this. And maybe if it was in a more robust area of the film industry, may have had a better chance. But I was living in Virginia and down here. And I realized that trying to learn it the right way wasn't going to happen with the indies and the no budget things that were going on. I have to get some kind of formal education. So when I started talking to looking at MFA programs, they were like, you know, you have an interesting background, but where's your portfolio? Like, oh, you know, I have these little flyers I made and I have this, like, I didn't have that background. And they recommended to me like a couple of them, you know, you should think about getting a second degree, second undergraduate degree in film and and putting together that portfolio. And that's, that's where I am now getting ready to go to grad school. That's amazing. I was really, really lucky at this first internship that I had started. Well, before I grew up in the like late 90s, early 2000s, emergence of the internet, emergence of like overload of information. And it always appealed to me to watch videos about self-help and how to become your best self and things like that. And one of the things that would always come up in these videos um, is if you don't know what you want to do, like find a good mentor, find someone who knows. And I was like, okay, well, that's a good step. I got to find a good mentor. So I was really lucky that the film house that I had started interning for was just that. And it was a group of, it is a group of people who is dedicated to like building the next generation and the next 
group of people and they guided me through so much and it was like college it was like business school yeah. in so many ways and so i'm really grateful for that if you're the smartest person in the room find another room uh, same thing I, I was lucky that when i when i went back to school found a mentor someone who saw right away okay this you know, this guy's different from everybody else and took me under under his wing. And really, even to this day, that continues. When you were growing up back then, were you into films? Were you a movie watcher? Were you a TV watcher? Or were you just so solely focused on music? I was not a film person at all. Coincidentally, I really do think it's a pure coincidence. My father's a photographer. So I grew up kind of around media, but it never appealed to me to pursue it or I was never drawn to it. And I definitely had no idea that the concept of a producer even existed. I didn't at all. It was really <laughs> the way I got in. And I want to be honest about it, too, because I don't know. I, I feel like film sometimes is like a discipline that people escape, uh, say, medicine from or like other other careers. That they're like, I'm going to do arts. I'm going to do the film. And that's my passion. But for me, it's like I need a skill set. I need to learn something. Th this is awesome. I really like this. Oh, wait, there's a whole culture back here. I kind of learned about it backwards. And I think what I love about business, I mean, about film is not the cinematics, um, creative side of it as much as I do the business side and the storytelling side. And me, you know, when I was growing up, I grew up in northern New Jersey, right outside New York City, so surrounded by theater. I may or may not have even known at NYU had a film program, but working in film or doing that, Hollywood, it was such a pipe dream. I mean, it was something that wasn't even real or feasible. Like, and again, this is before the internet. You know, this is just kind of stuck with it and you know, had I known that 30 something years ago when I finished up, maybe things would have been different. But yeah, it was really, you know, not just the internet, but with smartphone cameras, digital cameras, just that barrier to entry to filmmaker just dropped, making it so much easier. I mean, I played with my dad's Super 8 camera. I made a little, little movies when I was you know, seven, eight years old, just running around with the camera. But, you know, then my G.I. Joe came along or moved on. To something else, sports and everything. So it's really it's um it's made the opportunity so much more available to emerging filmmakers mm -hmm. that they didn't have really twenty years ago. Yeah. yeah, that we talked a little bit um on this. One of my favorite books and something I encourage every emerging filmmaker to read is a Rebel Without a Crew. It's Robert Rodriguez's diary of when he was making El Mariachi that made it for seven thousand dollars. He was sneaking film back and forth across the border, and just by circumstances, it got into Sundance, found a distributor, you know, distributor, they invested some money into fixing up the post, and then, wow. and that's how his career came off. It's, it's, it's an first inspiring story, because, you know, it, it can be done, and it just really shows that, you know, with, with ingenuity and creativeness and just seek he he was hoping to make a film and maybe get it on vhs tapes wow. you know for the for the spanish language market it's funny because that's such an inspiring story and i like look back to i remember at that time i was seven no sorry i wasn't 17 i must have been 18 going on 19 and i was i had just seen a documentary uh produced by beyonce and i was blown away it was the first one i saw of hers that really highlighted how intricate, how much of an intricate role she pay, plays in producing all of her stuff. And I was so impressed by that. And I still, I still hadn't fully um, 
uh, I guess you could say disconnected with music yet at that time. So I saw that and I was like, you know what, if I want to be able to produce my own music videos, I got to understand the process of producing. I need to understand it. I need to do that. And so that's really what drove me to dip my toe in. But it was a roller coaster. Yeah. Once I had started, I had learned all about all kinds of different type of things that I could do. So that was my my first segue, really, Beyonce. And you uh, you missed the days back when MTV actually played music videos yeah. and not just reruns of Ridiculousness in Jersey Shore. Yeah. You mentioned you found a mentor. Um, talk a little bit about that. Like how how important that was, what they taught you. Did you have to you know, convince them to take you under their wing or they just saw something in you? Say, first of all, I've had several. I never really have had just one. I would say that whole umbrella of that team were all my mentors, were all my teachers. Um, different ones taught me different things. Marco, who's the owner of that film house, one of the co-owners, he is like the executive producer there. So just to paint the picture, for like two weeks, I was mopping and cleaning and organizing the prop department and organizing anything that there was to do. I would just kind of come up with things to do. I didn't want them to have to ask me to do things. So I was very proactive in turn. My first official assignment, if they want me to say this, but I'll say it. They gave me like a stack of papers that must must have been like six inches thick. And it was like hot pink neon paper because they didn't have white paper. And it was like four years of bank statements. And they're like, hey, like we need help to catch up on our taxes try this activity, like itemize these, these, this is entertainment and food. And this is this and that. I'm like, okay, took me about two weeks to do that. And I mean, they weren't going solely, solely off of my work, but I think there, they were like, okay, she could do stuff. And, um, Marco guided me more on like business, business administration, managing teams, um, producing projects from the start, like all of the, you know, he's the, you know, that's where I learned on the feature film side, like how to break down a script, how to make, you know, my first schedule and movie magic, all of those things were, were that side. And then on the other hand, we had blah, blah to mill. He goes by blah. He's like the creative head of Florida film house. And just like, there would be so many times where we'd be sitting and, you know, he'd be editing something and he was really like the storyteller. He really knew how to craft a story. And I learned a lot about that from him. I learned how to edit from him. So I had a really good balance of business and creative there. And those are two people who are always willing and excited to teach. And I'm always willing and excited to learn. So it was a perfect match. And the fact you got a well-rounded, you know, both the business side and the creative side, it sounds like at the very least you had good organization skills, good probably attention to detail, like you had some of those soft skills yeah. that sometimes a lot of creatives aren't, which is why they stay on the creative side. They don't move over to the, well, pro- say to the I, producing side. I do want to mention for anyone who might like be experiencing this, it was a struggle for me at first. Going from music my whole life and creative, creative, creative into business, it was not natural for me. I didn't. It was not intuitive for me. Sim- simple things like assembling professional emails and like spreadsheets at first, it just wasn't. And it's a skill that I developed over time. Awesome. Sounds like you're uh, right. You're in the right place at the right time. Karma or whatever you may or may not, you know, whatever you I believe manifested in. It. Manifested I, it. I really feel like I did. You manifested your own destiny. I took some wrong turns too along the way, but um, ultimately, yeah, as long as you always reconnect with like who you are inside and if you're ever off course, 
that's really all it takes to, to kind of get back on track as long as you're really being true to yeah. you. And don't be afraid to fail. You're going to fail. You're going to fail. Like I think pe- like a lot of, and again, I'm not bashing today's youth. I'm not bashing parents, but there's so much effort being put into remove pitfalls and try to remove failure from people's lives as a grown up that they don't learn how to handle it. And when they first start to encounter it in their late teens, early 20s, they don't know how to handle it and end up really going off the rails. It's great. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Cinevideotech and Paradoxical Films are pleased to bring you Tell Your Story Master Training Workshops. You will learn how to work with actual 16mm and 35mm film and film cameras, as well as how to load and change magazines. In addition, the workshop will teach you what it takes to work on set as a first or second assistant camera, the fundamentals of lighting, and the pathway to becoming a director of photography visit www.paradoxicalfilms.com backslash tell your story for information on dates pricing and how to sign up hurry as seats are limited and classes are filling up quickly And we are back with Francesca Gonzalez. I want to talk about what is production management. Obviously, it's managing the production. That's my Marine Corps type of answer. But why is production management, why is that side of the house so important? Like, why is it basically the bloodline and the gears that make a, a film or a production come to life? I think it's, it's kind of like what you touched on before. It's like sometimes all, when you're all the way creative, it's hard to, to put structure to, to the vision. And essentially, that is what a UPM does, depending on the size of the project that you're working on. Pretty much the UPM assembles all the data of all the moving parts that every department wants to make come to life, and they help facilitate the logistics behind that. And if anybody's listened to this, if, you, if you've ever been on a production or if you've never been on a production, you're considering producing, you are the one who is to have all the answers to all the questions at all times. <laughs> And and a lot of times, to your point, there's some indie productions where, you know, the director slash writer is also, you know, the only producer type. And you see what happens when you don't have one. I'm trying to remember if there's been a project recently that I've worked like that. Where I have like the, the most recent feature I worked on, we had a uh, our EP was also the writer and she was directing as well. And she also was helping put together a lot of the wardrobe because she's privy to that field and wanted to be hands-on in that way. But then the actual execution of what she planned and envisioned, some of it she would take on, some of it she wouldn't. I think I'm, I'm also, once again, lucky in that way. I haven't seen one of those disasters unfold in front of me because I know they can be disastrous. Within the portfolio or within the responsibilities of the UPM, you got everything from hiring the crew, hiring the above the line, you know, the logistics, especially. So when you watch these big blockbusters and you see Mission Impossible in 12 different countries and Indiana Jones and a bunch of different countries, that's all the UPM is managing. Every time. Yeah, I do watch movies from the lens of a producer always or um, storyteller. So if it's something I find comedic, I'm always like, damn, I wish I was in that writer's room when they, like, you know, whoever wrote that, that's genius. Or, um, yeah, like when you're watching Fast and Furious, like you said, and you see the cars flipping and exploding and some of it's CGI, but some of it's actual cars and you're just like, wow, wow. Like how many takes did that take? And is that even a real car? And who, 
if it's not a real car, who's the VFX person who made it and how do you make it? Or you watch you watch Gone in 60 Seconds like I do, and at the end when they crush the 67 Shelby GT500, you just like start crying. And then you realize, okay, it was just a replica. They made like 10 of them for the film. Thank goodness. Oh. And then, you know, I mentioned credits at the beginning. So similar to a producer, my former life was project management. So when I look at the credits of these huge crew lists, you know, especially like the superhero movies and you know, with all the VFX and all the CGI, and you're seeing like thousands upon thousands of people listed in the credits, I'm also thinking like, what a job it must be managing all those people. You know, you have department heads, and but eventually you work your way up the pyramid. It's one person who's ultimately in charge, and that that's the UPM. Yeah. It, it's funny because I, um, when I talk to my friends who aren't in film, like say about work stress... <laughs> <laughs> the words I'm saying are just like, yeah, I'm really stressed out with work, you know, but they don't really know the calls, the emails. You are like the you are on everyone's uh, quick dial, everyone at all times for everything. And I have had my dark times as a PM. Like it was especially when I was first starting. I learned you can say by making a million mistakes because there was in some on some projects zero guidance yeah. like here we believe in you you can do this boom here's minimal detail figure it out and you figure it out or you don't and it's still you know if you don't it's not the end of the world but yeah I, you figured it out or you don't there's just too many people depending on you and that's just a lot of pressure um in the beginning at least for me it was really a lot of pressure in my younger years for sure i just finished listening to a great eight-part podcast series uh, yes, I do listen to other podcasts, like we all do. And it's about how Hollywood made the Vietnam War. It's about Hollywood's relationship with the Vietnam War. And a lot of the the most well-known Vietnam War, you know, Apocalypse Now, Platoon, um, a lot of them were filmed in the Philippines. And just the challenges they had with Philippine, like, you know, foreign crews, especially you get into just a whole different animal that's there. And then there's um, you know, French Hours. Which you know, I think I think they get a wine break in the middle of the day is is, is written into their contracts. Wow! So it's uh, it's, Ooh, it's sign don't, me up. don't don't quote me on that. I learned about it once in film school. I need I need to go refresh. You mentioned you know trying to explain to friends who aren't in the film industry what you do. I want to actually jump ahead in your career that you've also moved into film distribution. And what I often try to explain to friends, try to get to understand this $200 million you know, production movie made $500 million. What do you mean it lost money? I know it. You know it. Can you break it down a little bit to how that's possible and why that happens? Well, I always like to say that like film distribution should really start before you make the film. It's really tough concept to understand as a creative, like fully creative. And it's it's business. It's pure business. Um, when I was working with Florida Film House around like a year into they had already uh filmed a few features and a year into working with them they wanted to start submitting into film festivals getting denied denied sort of film house is like specialty is making urban latino content um this is pre-moonlight so there was not a lot of distributors who wanted to get involved at all they didn't have the audiences for it so they say so we would go out to film markets and try to get all of our slate sold we would try to like pitch 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 it was really difficult super difficult once Moonrise Moonlight came out, the whole game changed. But I will say that 
I'm definitely not an expert in distribution, but from what I've learned along the years is that it's ever-changing now more than ever. And I've seen on the independent films that I've worked on that have had success with distribution, it's all in the post-film marketing and the leading up to it. It's all in the marketing and knowing your audience and know who you're distributing to. You no longer have to go the theatrical route. Mm-hmm. You could self-distribute, but it, it is going to take either um, really good community building or really big budgets or both or or if you're an indie you know an indie no no budget low budget filmmaker you can get your films onto you know there's so many streaming platforms that are out there you can get it on a lot of you know there's some that if you just you know check all the boxes correctly get on um you know crackle there's there's to be some some other ones that are but like you said it's always changing because the major streamers that are out there have, re- have really changed the game a lot of which that's what the strike is about and even if you are able to get your stuff on the ones that don't that are free like the tubies and stuff you still um, like tubies not really going to push your content you're the one who needs to get it in front of the eyeballs of who, who you want so yeah there's definitely a lot of post-show stuff i mean post-production alone is a big chunk of of where your budget goes Sometimes it's incorporated in on the front end. Sometimes they completely separate those numbers. Mm-hmm. But I would say if, if you shot a film for two hundred and and gross five, still made, still made a little. We're still talking about the hundreds of millions. So yeah. to me, I'm like, that's great. Yeah, I, I was, you know, I mentioned Mission Impossible Seven. I was reading the breakdown yesterday. I I teach high school film, so looking for things to bring into class mm-hmm. and that, and it, it broke down like how it barely made money. But again, the studios. If they're not, because don't forget, yes, it makes, it may make a profit, but that small profit may not be enough to pay back what the investors and were promised and how the points will break down. So the studio ends up having to pay that out of pocket because investors may or may not be okay with not getting their, their full that's dividend. True. Yeah, that's yeah. true. I definitely have never worked in on that size budget but I have seen success in the independent space. People who shoot films for, you know, $300,000, which is not a little bit of money, I know, um, self-funded, and they gross in the $2 million range. Yeah. So they definitely saw profit from what they put in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's, there's a lot where independent filmmakers can make a film for, call it a few hundred thousand, that whether they fundraise or get it in, and then are able to take it to market and find a distributor to, that'll buy it from them in the millions. It can seem really daunting. I just know, I know. And that's what I really loved about being a part of the film festival is that we really wanted to drive education on distribution because it's such a uncharted territory for creatives and for new filmmakers who are like, what I mean, yeah, it could be really um, frustrating to create and create and create and never really see it go anywhere. So it's an important skill to learn and to immerse yourself in. And I think the more we continue to like evolve digitally, it's going to become easier and easier for independent filmmakers to self-distribute and get their stuff out there. So I would definitely say uh, prioritize learning it, even if it feels super uncomfortable and out of your realm, um, or surround yourself with someone who is good at it and isn't uncomfortable by it, who may be willing to help you. I tell everyone, t- take advantage of your town or city's public libraries. And your film commissioners. And your film commissioners. It's a great point. Film commissioners. Point. We have a great film commissioner. Sandy Leinerman is always, oh, she's like a giver of 
tools, information, resources. So, yeah. Sandy Letterman, we talk about her a lot on the podcast, the Broward County Film Commissioner and the newly elected president of Film Florida, which is the statewide organization. Just recently, um, within the last month, that happened. Yeah, San- Sandy is, is a rock star and she's really working hard to bring the film industry back to South Florida. We jumped ahead. Let's go back again. You've worked your tail off as an intern. You've gotten noticed. You know, now you're moving up in your career. What was the first, your first paid job? You know, your first, like, I don't want to say real job, but what was, you know, your first real, like, step into this? There's levels. So, like, my first job as a PA, I think, was a music video. And it was actually the Migos. And they're like a rap crew. And that was so cool to me. I was like, oh, my God, the Migos. This is so cool. Um, That was special. Um, Being that we were an independent film company, what I liked about it is that we were like the same crew almost always for every production. And there was guidance, but there was a lot of just like learning as you go. So I would say music video, that was like my first paid job as a PA. But like the first big job I took as a production coordinator. Maybe some would have said that that role should have been called PM, but I just wasn't even qualified to be called a PM at the time. A producer came into our film house and he was coordinating a live stream, sorry, a um, filming the media for a big music festival called EDC Las Vegas. The festival has about 180,000 attendees and the crew is about 140 people. They called me in maybe two, three weeks before the gig and gave me as much information as they possibly could. Um, but that one really shell-shocked me. My first EDC, I was 21 maybe, and I was managing 140 people. Not, I mean, really thugs that one out. That one, <laughs> there was no guidance on that one. It was truly like a, a test of, do you really want to do this? Baptism by fire. Baptism by fire. Yeah. EDC is that, is that some electric daisy carnival? carnival and it's an amazing it's an amazing festival it's a really amazing company insomniac that puts together like fantastic really thorough festivals for their attendees but it was um it was a lot because it, it I, I find in, in as a pm i i have had the chance to like network with people and maybe bigger studio projects and like the role of a pm is probably what I do now and condensed because they have the budget to outsource the line producer to just do the budgeting and the production coordinator to just do the logistics of traveling and stuff. A lot of times, you know, I find on the smaller projects, there's not the luxury of like having so many different producers. So from start to finish, you know, we're managing the budget, hiring the crew, doing all the contracting and the travel and the accommodations. Um, and the creative planning, all that stuff goes into it. But that was my first a big break, if you will. One thing I often come across in production is just there never just seems to be enough time. You're always playing catch up. You're always trying to like get back on schedule. Have you ever been in a situation as as a, a PM where there's maybe a new or on the inexperienced side production coordinator or that where the time it takes you to explain and train them to do something right you find it easier just do it yourself and get it done no you're actually, you're very fortunate no no i'll tell you why no 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 because i always know when i'm going to have a new coordinator and i as a producer i foresee that potential outcome happening and so i prepare myself whether it's my job or not to make sure that i can give this person as much thorough information so that my job becomes easier i love the training process i love 
communicating information down to whoever is going to be on my team to help. And I never leave it to chance. I never, ever, 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 ever put position myself that way because that is your right hand soldier. And you can't afford to have to teach them stuff. There have been times where I have people around me that aren't as experienced and I, I'll still figure out, I'll make it work. I, I'm really good at like identifying working styles and personalities and just making the best of it because I've been fortunate enough to at least get enough heads up to be able to do that, even if it's a day or two. So, yeah. Definitely having a right-hand soldier is helpful. Having a right-hand Marine would be even yeah. better. Having two, Having two is a dream. Yes. Doesn't always happen like that. Is there any, you know, you talked about your baptism by fire. We've talked about failing, you know, and mistakes. Is there any like significant failure or snafu either? Not maybe you did, but that you were part of or that impact you that taught you a huge lesson? Yeah, actually. So I don't know if this is like, okay, so as a PM working on independent projects, whether they were independent or not, I think... um as far as me personally, I've always worked very, very hard, sometimes to the point of exhaustion, sometimes um, because I feel like I have to prove something like I can do it and I'm capable. Um, and I think one of the biggest mistakes that I made, you know, being a producer who for the most part is being subcontracted on jobs, you know, I'm there for a short time. This is not the same as a W-2 employer. I think the biggest mistake that I have made that I've now learned from is you have to remember uh, your place in the sense that, and you have to remember your worth. I think sometimes I've overextended myself in on projects and situations that even if they wanted to nurture and support it, I've burned myself out and I've overworked myself. And I think that's the biggest mistake I've made. And I forget sometimes like, this is just a project. This is just like for the festivals. This is just a rave. <laughs> Don't kill yourself. As far as logistical mistakes, um, I've made plenty, so many, none that were detrimental or that made me reflect as much as the one I just said. Yeah, because, yeah, you you can really burn yourself to the ground. You really can. I've been there and it's not a fun place to be because um, you don't maximize your output that way. So, yeah, and sometimes it's hard. To say to yourself, you know, it's just the production, it's just the this, it's just the this, because we put so many hours, we put so much blood and sweat, sometimes tears, into something. It's hard to, like, not have it just meld into your life. There's been times as a production manager, because remember, there's still other producers and bosses on top of that UPM, always. Um, I've been in, on several projects where the people above me maybe were um, just did not have it together. And that made my job very difficult. So I had to learn how, like you said, how to separate, like you can care and you can work hard. You can't care and work harder than a certain threshold. Otherwise you're just gonna, you're not gonna be happy. And yeah, I'm just now getting out of like a long period of doing that. Kind of like what we said on, on, on one of our breaks, I kind of just stepped away from a full-time position that where I was showing up in that way um, and had nothing to do with them. It was purely me. So you got to know, because the thing about production in general is that you're traveling different places. You're getting called to do gigs left and right, sometimes with just with the same team, sometimes with not the same team. So it's so easy to get like blown away in the wind, like the next project, the next thing, the next thing. You got to learn what to say yes and no to. So yeah. Great advice. We're going to keep this conversation going. We're going to take another quick break. But first, 
We would like to thank our partners that help make this podcast possible. Cinevideotech, who has been providing filmmaking equipment, training, and services to the film industry both inside and outside the United States since 1968. M2 Films, who provides directing, writing, and assistant director services. ComTV, who offers consulting and production services for a wide range of entertainment, marketing, advertising, and commercial projects. And we are back. So now you work in live events doing production management. How is that similar to working in films and how is that different? It's similar in the sense that you're still responsible for the whole execution of the production. It's different in the sense that I find there's a lot less creative involved when doing live events specifically not because of the nature of live events just because the nature and what my specific role was with the specific client that we had the process is very different in the sense that when you have a narrative of any kind narrative project or documentary you're doing a script breakdown that's like the one of the biggest parts of producing and the pre-production um there's none of that um it's very simplified when i as i was doing pming stuff in the live music side we were working with a very corporate client and they had a lot of systems in place as far as the kind of content capture that they want and it was almost like a conveyor belt method that they've developed with vendors from all around the country and they have like their style figured out um so there's not much creative on our side but i would say the live event was a lot more taxing energetically as far as like the time that had to be put into it and just like the volume that of shows we were working, you know, I think right now, I mean, I don't even know how many total shows, but it's like it's in the 40s or 50s for the year and there's 52 weeks in a year. So you are nonstop. You're traveling. You're working 18 hour, 20 hour days with little rest in between traveling back home for a day or two, going to the next city, producing one show while you're on set for one for the next show and never stopping. It is very different than, hey, there's this film. We want to shoot it, you know, in three weeks and we want the pre-pro to be another three weeks. So we're adopting you for six weeks and you're going to be a part of this little family. And then you move on and you go on to the next thing. But in the production managing side of the the, the live event stuff that I was doing full-time um, for two years, it was pretty much on call for everything at all times. Do you feel that there's more pressure with the live events because they're going live? You really don't have any, if all, flexibility to move things around where if you're filming, filming a movie, yeah, you know, you have a schedule that's trying to keep. But if you're shooting an outdoor scene and a hurricane is coming through, you know, you could potentially shuffle the schedule around. You know, you could shoot indoors that day or do other stuff. Really, you know, for a live event, if it starts on this day, this time, that's your hard deadline and it must stick with that. I don't think the nature of the fact that it's live causes more pressure so long as you do good pre-pro and you prepare yourself. I think what brings on more pressure regardless of the project is do you have the proper support? I find that the jobs that bring the most pressure are the ones I don't have the support that I need to do the best job that I can. And 
sometimes you're doing a job that has 40 people and you don't have the support and it feels like pressure. Sometimes you're doing a job that has 140 people and you have the support and you feel equipped to do the job. Your team is everything as a producer and as a PM. Your PAs are everything as a producer and a PM. That's really it. Yeah. Having the right team is is very important no matter what the production. And we talked about during one of the breaks, you know, you have made it a point to do this well, you know, in your experience, but producers, PMs, anybody, treat your PAs well. You know, it doesn't mean, and I don't mean, you know, send them limos and cars to pick them up. Like you just said, they are so important. There's a a history, some even call it a, um, a rite of passage, being a PA and being treated like crap. I was a Marine. When I went to boot camp, the days of hazing, you know, the, the days like in full metal jacket, you know, the code reds, like, you know, the blanket parties, that stuff didn't happen. Drill instructor never even came close to laying a hand. They, they didn't have to, you know, their voice and body language was enough to make you quiver. So, you know, if my drill instructor walked in that door right now, and I heard him yell, Brand, you will see me stand up to attention faster than, than you can imagine. But yeah, they're there to help you. Don't abuse them. Yeah. A PM and a PC is like the head of the octopus and your PAs are the tentacles. They are the extensions of you. They help keep everything running. They feed you. They support you in anything you need. And they really are the glue. I, I treat my PAs well and don't undermine their role at all as far as like the hierarchy. And I think that's a little bit more prevalent with like the younger generations of filmmakers. I would hope I'd say my experience is that definitely like growing up, I not growing up, but, like when I first started in film, like the picture that was painted to me about PAs is that they're like the bottom of the barrel. They're the bottom. They're the, they're the bottom feeders. And they're gophers. That's they're, all they're there for. Yeah, they're gophers. And that's what everyone says. And no one wants to be a PA. And, and it's so not true. And I don't see it like that at all. Yeah. Sometimes my PAs are people who are like right borderline of, of being qualified to be a coordinator with me. Yeah. I don't know. PAs are important. And a lot of people say, you know, you need two things to be a PA, a pulse and a driver's license. And you yes. must be over 25. And you must be over 25. Yes. For rental cars. I think, especially film students today coming out of film school, I think they're qualified enough to be more than a PA and be more in a like entry level. They've spent time in camera. They spent time in g &E. They've done production coordinator. So, you know, I'm not saying in a huge Hollywood, but in, in an indie low budget production, they could be a third AC. They could be on a G&E team as a grip. I think I just, I don't know. Again, when we talk about gopher, if it's the right position, yes. But again, PAs still get the um, go get coffee, go get food. Which, how much are you going to learn about making a film when you're at Starbucks half the day? Yeah, that's true. But I do think, and that's why I really do say it goes back to the team. Like, not everybody is lucky to have, like, a leader on their team that is looking out for the development of the PAs right. around them. That's unfortunate. And that's why, as a PA, it is your responsibility to give yourself the exposure that you are looking for to move to the next level. It's not always easy. Yeah, sometimes you're stuck lifting things all day or changing trash bags all day. If you want more, you got to figure out who's the person I got to talk to, who's the person I got to know. It's a little tougher on big studio sets. I've learned when I've gone to the West Coast and work on like union jobs, they are not nice in the sense that every department is their own clique. Don't talk to the grip department. You don't talk to the uh, lighting department. You guys don't talk. You come, you do your job and you leave. That's why I love the independent space because you form a family and you're depending on each other a lot harder than you are on the big studio sets. Right. And it's easier actually, I think, to get ahead on the independent sets than it is Absolutely. on a studio set. Absolutely. And and I always tell them, you know, 
Keep your eyes eyes and ears open, mouth shut, use common sense. That'll usually get you 95% of mouth the Mouth shut is a big there. one. I, I have had PAs that don't d- do that well. And then it just, yeah, um, there is such thing as a disruptive PA. Oh, absolutely. You know, don't, you know, if you want to be in camera, don't go up to the camera team when they're in the middle of a lens change trying to calibrate and they got the first AD yelling at them like, yeah, come on, come etiquette. on, come on. And be like, hey, so what are you guys doing? Tell me how this works. Okay. So I was that PA. <laughs> Okay, I was the P- I was that PA. <laughs> I was so I could say like again in the in the in the independent space, there was like the majority of the sets that I was on, people were more than happy to explain things, more than happy to yeah, to explain things. And when the energy wasn't that, I think it was very obvious. Like when this is not the type of energy or the type of person that you should approach, don't do it, you know? And that's why I think even right out of film school, depending on your age, when you're coming out of film school, getting a few years, not sorry, not years, a few gigs under your belt as a PA is important just to see like the dynamics of how a film crew moves. Because you don't want to be the guy that doesn't get called back because they tried to befriend the director unknowingly and it just crossed the line unknowingly. And I would say the other important thing like in film school is don't always work with the same people on every project. I mean, yeah, I admit I have two people that I work with almost all the time, but one is my, is a DP. So when I'm directing and she's DP, we 100% complement each other and work perfectly. And my other one has been kind of like my writing creative partner. If you have, you know, a crew of like eight to 10 people, and that's all you've ever worked with, when you go to a different crew on the first time and meeting different people and different personalities, it could be a challenge. It could be a challenge. I had a lot of, um, I had to unlearn the guerrilla way of doing things, like learning the independent way. Our teams were smaller around the size you just mentioned. So we all wore multiple hats. It was very normal for us, for us to dabble into several disciplines. And when I went into the big world or bigger world, it wasn't even that big, much bigger of productions. There were things that I were used to helping on and helping with just because on small teams you you don't even think about it you just hey you need to refill the cooler with ice that's no big deal take out the trash that's no big deal or uh the coordinator is having an issue with their anything oh yeah i'll step in and help and i've gotten in trouble before for people saying like why is she trying to do my job or why is she trying to do this or do that and and i had to say oh my god i'm so sorry not at all like so sorry and i didn't understand you know early on i didn't understand um it took me maybe a couple of years to figure that out because I just wanted to help. And it's why you talk about clicks and, and departments. So one of the things that have been kind of ingrained into me was, you know, especially camera department, do not touch camera gear. Like just stay away from it. So the first feature I worked on, I was a PA. And like on the first day, the first or second AC asked me, can, you know, hey, can you go grab our, our lens case? And I'm like, am I being hazed? You know, I'm like, this is like, a trick. I'm, I'm like, yeah, you want me to get your lens case? Yes. Okay. Witnesses when he got it. And, and it was just, they were busy and I looked responsible enough to get it. Also on that, I went from PA to AD in two days, like two or three days. So, whoa. Again, if you go in and, you know, it was a small, you know, it wasn't a huge crew. But, you know, if you go in, like you said, you know, work your tail off, be smart, eyes and ears open, mouth shut, pay attention and just... And think ahead. Think ahead. That's the biggest thing. That's the biggest thing that I think got me ahead. I solved people's problems before they could ask me about it. And that wanted, that made them want to have me around more. And then delegate bigger and bigger, bigger things to me. If you can't be the guy who's like sitting around and like, you know, wait for me to be like, hey, like what's going on? And like, 
there's trash everywhere or whatever. You never want to be that guy. I find that it happens a lot. So when you find yourself good PAs, like you got to keep them around. Or if you're hiring someone who doesn't have the experience, understand that that's who you brought. You chose to bring that person. So right. if that person needs developing, you got to right. go into it, right. into the project knowing that too. Right. Like with this, we were shooting you know, in a small space and had a lot of equipment. So we had to keep shuffling equipment around to make room. And I said, hey, how about we move the equipment that we don't that we know we're not going to use first, put that in the back, the equipment we know we're going to use towards the front so we don't have to go digging. I mean, you would have thought I walked on water for that because no one else was just thinking like like to them. It was just, we just got to move this crap over here as quick as we can. I can't tell you how many times people have told like like me or someone on our team that they were so impressed that we took out the trash or they were so impressed that me as a PM did this thing that's considered, like you said, go for work. And it's just like not the right mindset. I want to go back. So we talked about you grew up in music. You know, I think you still love music. Being around music and these live events, did it or does it make you miss it? No, it doesn't make me miss it. it in fact, so I'm so grateful for my experience in live music. I mean, not in live music. I'm so grateful for my experience with music because now I'm getting and I'm venturing into the world of creating my own things. And I find that my connection to music makes it really helpful for me to tell a story, not just from envisioning it creatively, but also being able to envision it in a way that an editor would in relation to the music. And it just, they have married each other so beautifully. And I don't know if I would have had that connection to be so deep without my like thorough musical training. There's days I'll go into a trance, listening to music, envisioning the visual behind it and just going out and creating it. Um, Nothing crazy, nothing intense, nothing crazy, just for fun. But yeah, in fact, but the live music side, I wasn't a big fan of it just because it was electric music and that's not my, my vibe at all. Not even electric string groups like Bond and Spinfony. Oh, I, I'm sure. I love them. I, you know what? It's awesome. not an electronic music I don't, I'm not a big fan of. It's the being at a rave. It's intense. For me, it's the crowd. I cannot do it. They're intense. You feel them. There's hundreds of thousands of people. You feel them. It's a lot. I'm not a fan of, of r the rave, but I love live music. And What goes into managing a film festival? So I think the biggest part and my favorite part of managing a fil the film festival was the community engagement. You're building a community at the end of the day. And every single part that you're curating from start to finish is with them in mind. Not just the filmmakers who are submitting their films and like looking to get exposure, but also the people who are coming for educational purposes or to network with people. I loved doing the film festival because it was just literally building a community out of thin air. It takes, there's like, a, yeah, there's like a very systematic process, you know, open submissions almost always happen the day after the previous film festival. We open them right up. And depending on on the festival's preference, you'll set deadlines of different sorts and to, to start sorting through movies. So off the bat, because we were a smaller team, we were the ones looking through our movies. Our programming team was like three of us. And I was also one of them. Um, so immersing yourself in the films, developing like a rating system so that you can see w which ones are going to get in, which ones aren't. Um, there's logistics, coordinating workshops, getting your instructors, 
instructors out. There's uh, partnerships, both with the community and with brands for activations. And then there is curation, like experience of, of, yeah, there's the curation of the experience from start to finish. So I know what I've been told and what I've been experienced, what I've experienced happens in a movie that would cause it to not be considered for a film festival or kind of, you know, not even get past like the first round of viewings. What would you look for or what would you see or hear in a film that would just right away say this is not festival quality or what we're going to show? So I, I think I mentioned this earlier, but at the beginning of our journey, so just for the record, Urban Film Festival is created with the same team at Florida Film House. So it's an extension of that same team. And we were submitting our films to a bunch of film festivals and getting denied, denied, denied. And that was not a good feeling. And we made it almost like a point for our film festival. We had like standards and we wouldn't we wouldn't accept everyone. But it was really for the young up and coming filmmakers who are creating stories that typically maybe first of all, some of them were like spectacular. Some of them had like amazing stories, but their audio guy maybe wasn't the best. Some of them had amazing stories, amazing audio, but every now and then their shows were their shots were overblown. We were a little bit softer on our judgment when it came to that because our main motivation was we want to show the filmmakers who are actively at it creating that they can get their film on the big screen. And more than anything, we wanted to encourage them to continue to create more. We had some filmmakers that submitted on year one and because of that acceptance, they continued to create by year five, the level that they had excelled was exceptional. So the things that would like de- determine an absolute no was just like like no story structure was a be- big one. It was like a combination of stuff like poor story structure, no audio, cursing was a big one. Like there were some that were independent that people just cursed a lot for like web series and stuff sometimes. That was a big one. It wasn't a final final factor. Um sometimes the acting wasn't the best, but like the story needed to be told. We we kind of gauged each film like on a per film basis and then we would we would program them based on certain categories. So there would be some that would be like, you know, independent short romance films um, or, you know, documentaries in the Latino space or go around the world with us and watch these documentaries from these Latin countries. So we would find a way to program them based on on the submissions that we got because we just wanted these guys to get the exposure that they needed. And then we would have distributors come out to look, watch these films and and try to broker deals for them as well. So that plus then they have the educational element to it where they can actually learn how to become better. So obviously it excites me. Audio and sound is what I've often been told is just a, a big, a big factor. And with me, as I was learning to make films, I got to the point where I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to make silent films indoors from now on because I don't can't deal with your know, dialogue issues and I don't want to deal with the sun and planes flying overhead and all that. So in my control, but it's a great input. That's definitely beneficial to filmmakers and submit a lot of them. That's why we even kept us for submission fees low. Cause it's like, it's expensive. It can get expensive. It, it can get expensive, especially if you want to submit to a lot of them. Yeah. It could get very expensive. So it's like, Oh, well, yeah, that could be. And, and imagine getting told no and you're spending hundreds of dollars. It could be really defeating and you never know. Like I wonder how many people stopped creating because of that that were amazing filmmakers that had amazing stories to tell so if we could keep reading the community and keep growing i mean it's a win 
Exactly. We're going to take one more break and we'll be right back to conclude this episode. If you enjoy listening to our podcast, please support us by subscribing on your favorite podcast platform and giving us a rating. Then you can head over to our online store at www.paradoxicalfilms.com backslash shop where you can purchase Cinema Pathway gear, including t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, and more. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram at cinema underscore pathway underscore podcast for behind the scenes photos and more. I'm Howard Brand, and we are talking today with Francesca Gonzalez. Talked quite a bit about what you have done, your background, your experiences. What are you doing now? What are you doing these days? So I have recently, and as in recently, I mean very recently, transitioned out of producing full-time under one production company. Literally since Tuesday. This happened on Tuesday, where I kind of... As I mentioned before, I was on show to show, back to back, really burnt out, overworked and kind of asking myself, do I want to do production? Do I want to be a roadie? <laughs> and I'm trying to really figure out how to bridge like all of the experiences that I've had so far to the next phase. So there's a few things that I um, would like to start and it's more so in producing of events for the film community. I think right now that's where my head is at, not just for the film community, for different communities. I think I'm in a place right now where I would love to continue doing productions uh, on a freelance basis, but I want to move into the space of using my skill sets that I've learned from production to now create experiences for people. And that's really where I want to go. Yeah, I don't have like a real real view yet of what the possibilities are just because I've I'm like in literally at the midst of a really big transition and it's scary but it's also super liberating Mm -hmm. and it's also exciting because and I tell this all the time especially like with new people who want to get into film when you learn how to produce and you learn how to production manage Mm -hmm. you can pretty much manage so many different kinds of businesses. You know, when you think about it, you're assembling a budget, you're putting a team together and you're figuring out all the logistics and in-betweens for how to get from point A to Z. And I think that that has taught me a lot about business. So I think I'm going to, who knows, honestly, I really, the, the real, real, real raw answer is I'm figuring it out. Are you staying in Miami or looking to maybe go elsewhere? Staying in Miami, I have developed a lot of connections around the country. Something that excites me a lot these days are drones. I have had the pleasure of working with a lot of great pilots around the country for these festivals and like ironically just been paired with them as like the drone permit person from, and then also the manager because there's like these new drones called FPVs and they're flying over crowds and doing really dangerous shots. So there's a lot of logistics that go in, you know, to be able to execute those shots. And I have, I'm just captivated by the drone. I would love to to get into the space of exploring how I can use my skill sets in that space of the industry because it's still so new and it's still uh, semi uncharted territory. So I think after coming from a place that like I felt very burnt out at and like uninspired, I really am like strictly holding the line for myself to only get involved on projects that really 
called to me, but also with teams that I feel compatible with. Very interesting. And you know, I asked about Miami. What what do you want artists, filmmakers, and other creatives to know about Miami and South Florida that they probably don't know or maybe have a, a preset notion about that's not true? What I want the filmmakers that are in Florida and in South Florida to know most is about each other. I don't think that we've immersed ourselves as deeply as we can. And I think that because maybe we're not union or because we're not like the go-to hub for big studio productions, that um, there's a lot of slept on territory here. There's a lot of great opportunities to connect with people. And I find that, I mean, I think really anywhere the film community is like independent wise, no matter where you go, they're hungry to create. But something about Miami has a different grind, I think. And yeah, so for the people in here, I would say that your biggest thing you don't know about is each other. And then for the people out of up here, I would say don't confuse the fact that we don't have like these big product productions and stuff with the fact, you know, as an equal reflection of our talent. We have a lot of talent down here and a lot of hungry talent down here. And a lot of the East Coast I've seen, I'm so sorry to create a divide between the East and the West, but I have found that the people on the East Coast, they just have a different grit. I don't know what makes that so, but it's here. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that I could expand to a lot of things in life that East Coast, grit, and, you know, the West Coast, just more laid back type thing. And we talked about Sandy before. We, we talked about the film commissions. And I've been to roundtables and other discussions where it's they want to bring in these bigger production companies. They want to bring in, you know, that's why you know, Broward County has a lot of new incentives that they're pushing. Miami as the incentives, even though there's no statewide incentives. I mean, definitely the local incentives are, are really, really good. And like, you, and like you said, there's so much homegrown talent down here. So for those that are in Florida, in source down here, and for those who are looking, you, know, you talk about drone shots, the amount of times we've seen, you know, establishing shots and drone shots of Miami Beach, and things, and then you see that they filmed the rest of the movie somewhere else in place. You know, they use another location as a stand-in for Florida. It's it's disheartening. Yeah, it is disheartening. There are so many beautiful, unique locations that you can't get anywhere else. And I will also say that Miami is a great place to double for other cities. Like we, I've shot films that take place in Atlanta and LA that we establish with stock footage and then shoot at the, these locations that could easily dub for either city it's so doable and there's yeah I, I guess it depends on the project that you're coming on for but yeah you could also probably get better rates than what you were you would with a union you know right. so yeah there's pros and cons yeah. but yeah i'd say location 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 growing up did you ever think this is what you'd be doing no not at all i never really knew what i would be doing i think i always did music so i would envision a future in music but deep down. I just knew it wasn't true. I wanted to be like in sports and in the chess club and on the debate team. It's yeah, no, I had no intention at all. Zero. Um, Similar to maybe like the guy who's, you know, everyone around him expects him to be a doctor or something. And then he ends up going doing something else. I had no clue. Inventing a new nothing bike, bike gear. Yeah. Yeah. Super, super not. But there are elements of it that I have always that I connect to that have always been points that I connect to. Like I think I've said a million times now, bringing people together um, and creating something and working on a team. Um, those are all elements of things that I get like deep enjoyment 
from. And production has been able to be a vehicle for that in my life. What sports did you want to play? And have you had an opportunity to get into that as an adult? Uh, no, <laughs> I always wanted to do track and field and volleyball and basketball, um, ballet. I always wanted to do ballet because I always understood from like the vocal side that the vocal classical training was the same for dance. I did get to try ballet as an adult last year. It was amazing. It, very similar to yoga in some ways. Yeah. And I just would have really loved to be on the debate team. Like that was, I remember I was at the portable seven after school and we had like after school um, meetups and I had to stop going because I had chorus practice and I was so mad. I was so mad. I was so happy there. Yeah. Speaking of debates, just a little side story. Yesterday, true story. During, you know, I teach high school film and in the film two class, I was trying to set up something to show and YouTube wouldn't load, the sound would load. So I have a small class, about nine students. And just between them, this debate erupted of what is cinema? What is film? You know, is there a difference? You know, Oppenheimer isn't film. It's, it's a movie. And like, I didn't have a tear rolling down my cheek, but- for me, like hearing them organically had that conversation and hear their passion for it is like why I gravitate, why I ended up teaching, passing that love. And it's it's all great. It's 10 through 12. Those are conversations that when I was in film school, a lot of the students like, like couldn't even think like that. There's nothing more special than to see the light bulb go off on a student's head. I, I worked with a non-for-profit for like three years called First Take Youth Film Program. And I get it. Like that spark, that excitement, or just like that epiphany. Oh, God, it's the and, best. And I was, I was teaching another class, teaching, you know, three-act structure, hero's journey and all that. And I say, you know, are there any movies you could think of that doesn't use the traditional three-act structure? With, by the time I finished the sentence, one of my students, I think a ninth grader goes, Pulp Fiction. I was going to say, Pulp Fiction. And I'm like, that's the most obvious one. Yeah. So it's weird. A lot of them have watched quite a bit of movies from like the 90s, not a lot from like the 2000s to 2015, like around when they were young, some of the more recent ones. But they do know, I, I also, I use Silence of the Lambs as an example a lot when I'm teaching protagonist antagonist because by definition of an antagonist, you know, somebody who's a barrier or obstacle to the protagonist, Hannibal Lecter really doesn't fit that mold. He's actually trying to help her. So who's the antagonist of that? Is it Buffalo Bill? Is it the doc, you know, the head doctor at the psychiatric institute? So it's just, and most of them have seen it. So it's- I'm kind of like that too, I guess. I've seen the earlier ones, but then the recent ones couldn't even. No, but I also haven't seen a lot of the older ones. Yeah. Well, and, and I'm also big. Michael Mann is my favorite director. So one of his, his films, Manhunter, is the original that introduced Hannibal Lecter. That's the original adaptation of Red Dragon. If someone's interested in following your footsteps, they want to have the type of career you've had. And you talked a lot a bit about how you started off, you worked hard, you know, this and that. What If you could give them one piece of advice, what would that be? As far as getting started, I would say, ask yourself, where do you want to be? And how can you reverse engineer the steps so that you can figure out step one? Step one, in my opinion, would be if you want to be a production manager one day, you need to immerse yourself in an environment where you'll have the opportunity to understand every facet of production. Sometimes that's being a PA. Sometimes that's watching YouTube videos and understanding what the grip and gaff department do. Sometimes that's working with your buddy that just wants to shoot a quick music video because he doesn't have the budget and wants to figure it out. To be a production manager, you need to understand all facets of production and, and, and operation. So get yourself in the room with 
the people that are doing those things and shadow them, ask them. People like teaching. People like passing the baton. There's so many professionals who would love to give down all their knowledge, uh, to give you the guides to not make the mistakes they made. Um, And they're everywhere. So make sure that don't fall into the trap of wanting to be so independent that you don't get help or support. Help and support is what's going to take you far and it's going to help you build the networks to go. Like the people you surround yourself with are going to dictate the outcome, the next outcomes in your life, 100%. And what you just mentioned about passing on knowledge and teaching, and again, this podcast isn't about filmmaking, writing, the whole process of making films and everything, but I also passing that knowledge on, I'm engaging and supporting emerging artists and teaching also gives, you know, gives stability. Part of it is this podcast. I get to geek out on my love of films. That's awesome. Yeah. I wish I could spend more time with younger minds that are, that want to get into the space and maybe one day I will. But um, it's super satisfying. And there's, um, like I said, there's plenty of people who are willing to teach. You just got to find them. How to find them? Sometimes, I, I mean, sometimes a simple Google search. I found Florida Filmhouse through my friend who's a DP. But I also, like I said, I interned a little bit at CVT. You know, I literally just Googled rental houses in South Florida. And I called him and said, hey, can I intern for you? A lot of times it's going to be a hit or miss. A lot of times you might have people who are not going to guide you well. It happens a lot. So I think the most important part, too, and like in the beginning, if you're in a place that's not feeding your growth, go to the next place. It's time. You got to know, you got to hold yourself responsible because in those beginning stages, a lot of times no one's going to tell you what to do. No one's even thinking about you. No one cares about you. No one cares about you really ever. It's really about you. You got to, you got to carry yourself to where you want to go. Are there any organizations, causes, groups, you know, that you're involved with that you support very near and dear to you that you want to give a little shout out to? I would say for sure, the First Take Youth Film Program is a huge one. They're doing great things in the community to teach the next generation of filmmakers. Um, that's a big one. Urban Film Festival is a big one. Really is a great resource and almost free, almost all around free festival for people to engage in stuff. Um, occasionally, they'll do recordings of their workshops and stuff. Um, connecting with the Urban Film Festival, I think, is a big one for any up and coming filmmaker. And Film Florida is a big one, especially for women in film. They're always doing meetups fantastic meetups too i've met really great people i've also met guys at their all women meetups which is funny film florida is a big big one yeah i would say those those are my three faves last question most important where can our listeners find you find you on social media where can they learn more about you and get in touch with you the best way to get in touch with me is probably social media right now there from there we'll probably transfer over to email or phone number but my instagram is at frenchy.g that's the only socials i have i mean i made a facebook account just to uh to be on all women's production group and some drone groups so you can find me on on facebook francesca victoria gonzalez and that's where you find me i'm gonna show my age i i still use facebook a lot i deleted mine and then i restarted it i have to because i grew up in new jersey born in school in connecticut college rhode island marine corps it's the best way to stay connected to people um you know and if there was a better if there was a better way to do it besides keeping an old-fashioned date book or something i probably would but for right now that's my connection to my uh my greater world anything else any other parting words thank you for this this is my first ever podcast in film and it was nice to reflect on my own journey. So that's what it's about. The pathway. Well, we thank you. This has been wonderful. 
insightful, excellent. You are a delight to have on the show and a delight to speak with. You have an open invitation to come back to the podcast in the future. We're excited to see where these next steps in your journey take you, and hopefully you'll you'll let us know. Thank you. I will. Great. Thank you so much. To our listeners, thank you again for joining us on the Cinema Pathway podcast today. I'm your host, Howard Brand. Our director is Miguel Miller. Our producer is Juliette Desan, with associate producer Victor Ferreira. The executive producer is Freddie R. Rodriguez. This has been a presentation of Paradoxical Films. Please visit our website, www.paradoxicalfilms.com, for more information about today's podcast. You can also email us at cinemapathway at paradoxicalfilms.com where you could send any comments or suggestions for future episodes. Remember to subscribe to the Cinema Pathway podcast on your favorite podcast platform and visit our online store at www.paradoxicalfilms.com backslash store to get your Cinema Pathway gear and follow us on Instagram at cinema underscore pathway underscore podcast for behind the scenes photos and more. We hope you will join us for our next episode where we will continue bringing on special guests to talk about the craft of filmmaking right here on the Cinema Pathway podcast. Lights out.